This is the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria, session number 23. Welcome to the Behavioral Observations Podcast, stimulating talk for today's behavior analysts. Now here's your host, Matt Sicoria. Hey everybody, welcome to session 23. I'm in the Tampa airport. I am on a layover on my way to APBA in New Orleans and I'm uh, taking advantage of this downtime to record an intro. So if you hear lots of things in the background, you know, just pretend you're listening to NPR and they're doing some story uh, on site somewhere. Uh, I can't help if a announcement if an announcement comes over the intercom but you know we're gonna do the best we can here with the time we have and I'm gonna make this introduction short given those circumstances and welcome Mark Dixon back to the podcast and this show we talk about uh, peak uh, the peak ABA system or curriculum if you will and how we developed it and what it's all about and stuff like that I think you're gonna really learn a lot about it if you're not familiar with it and we also touch on some stuff uh, related to the act interview or in podcast that we did uh, a little while back so all in all lots of cool things in this conversation um two quick things before we get going is uh first i want to thank all of you who uh took those uh continuing ed uh, uh credits if you will uh from previous podcast episodes so for those of you who uh are aware uh, some of the episodes are available for continuing education uh, the, the the type two kind that we're all looking for, right? And uh, those are at behavioralobservations.com forward slash get CEs. Um, so you can check those out there. And then secondly, I am, uh, as I mentioned, on my way to APBA. And I will be trying to figure out how to use this Instagram thing. So I am at behavioral observations on Instagram if you want to follow me or join me or whatever however that works with instagram uh i'll be trying to sort that out as we go i'll try to post some uh pictures that are suitable for public and uh yeah i think that's probably about it so again trying to keep this intro really short and get right to this uh, really interesting conversation i had with uh, another return guest dr mark dixon hey dr mark dixon thanks for coming back on the behavioral observations podcast how are you doing today Doing great. How about yourself? I'm doing well. You know, we've got a limited amount of time, and I've got a lot of questions for you, so I'm going to kind of get right to it. Uh, the uh, Act for Children with Autism and Emotional Challenges uh, episode that we, um, that interview we did a little while back, it's been very, very popular. And so I just want to kind of follow up with a couple of questions on that before we get to talking about the PEAK uh, curriculum. Sure. Uh, great. So, uh, can you kind of tell us what the current state of the research is on uh, that that curriculum? I've got a lot of people really jazzed about it, and uh, so uh, any any new information will be really helpful. Sure. Yeah, we've been we've been doing a number of different studies with uh, um, using that curriculum as, as our independent variable. Um, some of them have uh, been single subject, multiple baseline type designs looking at, um, you know, aggressive behavior of an individual or negative self statements that an individual makes that a caregiver can count the frequency of. So some, you know, kind of standard observable, measurable, you know, behavior change, single subject designs, projects. And then we've also, um, you know, ventured into the world of of group designs um, and using that as a 
uh, you know, independent variable to to examine the uh, you know the average behavior of of larger groups of folks. Um, we did one with um, a, a summer camp from last last year um, here that we offered at SIU. We called it a mindfulness camp uh, for kids that were between oh six years old and twelve years old or so. And uh, then we compared their performance on a variety of tasks um, after those that week of, of uh, you know being in the camp and doing these activities with uh, with a control group that was just in a regular summer school that had nothing to do with um, our curriculum. So we have we we have the, that work um, that's been pretty exciting. We have uh, one paper um, that's working its way through the editorial system right now another one that was accepted with revisions and uh and then a variety of other other projects that are kind of waiting in the wings to write up on data sets from the utilization of the the program um as the social emotional curriculum for um kids in emotional behavior disorder classrooms and comparing them to uh, waitlist controls and then also the one I'm most excited about is we have the curriculum being implemented at, in a tiered system of, um, you know, uh, RTI, tier one, tier two, tier three, mm-hmm. with about a thousand kids in a regular education middle school. And then comparing that to another thousand kids in a different school that we're not using the curriculum for. Wow. So some really big scale projects. There. Yeah. I, yeah. I, you know. I think there's there's a role for both of those things. You know, obviously changing the behavior of the single subject over time is is good, and you know we're we're doing that. Um, but I, I guess I'm kind of more excited about you know scaling these interventions up um, to really push you know the the possibility of this being implemented at a at a larger level of, um, of potential than what we typically do as behavior analysts. Well, you know, it probably is more accessible to people who aren't familiar with single subject design too. If you say, Oh, well, here's the control group. Here's the, you know, kind of intervention group. And mo- I think you probably have a larger body of people who kind of understand how that works as opposed to a, you know, a multiple baseline or, or, or what have you though. All, having said that, however, I do, I do love the, uh, that, that aspect of, of it as well, certainly as many of the teachers and staff that I consult with are oftentimes you know, looking at that, you know, obviously that's a that's the big deal. That's the big challenge that they're trying to face. So, you know, it's, I can see how both would be very, very uh, helpful in terms of uh, uh, disseminating this 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 uh, strategy or or um, curriculum or what have you. Um, so, sounds like some real fun stuff going on there. Uh, and so, I want to change to kind of more of a tactical question. As you've gotten more experience, kind of. Uh, implementing this curriculum do you have any you know kind of a just some some quick tips or some best practices for uh staff implementing it yeah sure um if if we talk specifically about delivering the 180 exercises in the book what my recommendations are is that first page of the of the activity that front section of the activity which is um you know kind of introducing them to the topic uh, going back and forth with a few questions and answers that should be delivered um, orally to the to the kids and really not just handed out to them to have them read, fill out that worksheet. I feel that that's just too um, it gets done too quickly. 
it's not um, a interactive conversation, but rather it feels kind of like a worksheet they have to do. Mm-hmm. And as a result, I don't think the um, the outcome is necessarily as good. So I see that that front page of the of each of the daily lessons um, really needs to be considered kind of like the skeleton, and then it's up to the implementer to kind of add the meat onto the onto those bones. Um, you know, I've seen and I've watched firsthand people do amazingly well with one lesson and that same lesson being delivered terribly by another person. Um, and and it, it's this almost, um, you know, characteristic of how far do you take the activity um, as an implementer that, that makes a difference. And I know that's really totally not behavioral sounding at all. Um, but, you know, I, I think it really does the, – the curriculum, as it's laid out, does lend itself to a wide range of variability in terms of implementation success. I feel, um, and the more that you, you know, are aware of ACT, the more that you kind of buy into it yourself, the more that you feel comfortable talking about these weird, touchy-feely things. Um, I think the better implementer you'll be. And those things are not addressed in the, in the curriculum at all. And those are surely a, uh, a whole line of, of possibilities in terms of future research, uh, in terms of implementation and quality and integrity and all that, that stuff. Um, so that would be my one recommendation I have is um, if you're not feeling this yourself, if you're not participating in it yourself, if you're not buying in to this to some degree, um, the probability of success is, is probably weakened. The other thing that I wanted to comment on is that in, on the backside of each of those daily activities, many of those tasks involve some sort of experiential exercise for the kids to do, whether it be, you know, making a paper mache dragon, that's their thoughts, and they write their thoughts on the dragon, or or it's, uh, you know, drawing images of uh, what they look like on the outside and what they look like on the inside. Um, you know, those things can be, be quickly done and... and um, you complete the somewhat of the task analysis that's listed in those curricular activities, or you can really spend time and, and quality and, and engage the kids in these processes. And I know I, I kind of cringe at, at des- describing things like this because I'm a behavior analyst, but I think that any good behavior analyst knows kind of what I'm talking about here. Yeah, um, so you just can't perfunct, you know, go power through this stuff in a perfunctory way. No, no, you can't. And I think, you know, and then the last thing I'll say about it is I think that one of the big challenges that that these kids are up against when you deliver this type of curriculum to them is that uh, there's they see you as, you know, the implementer as the expert who's, you know, somehow managed to work through life without these funky places that these kids seem to now be in, which is why they're needing this type of interaction. And I think that the more that you can um, show yourself as as somebody that also struggles with some of these same processes. Um, the more that the kids will, will trust you, and the more that they're probably going to um, disclose things accurately to you. And I think the more that they'll probably get out of those lessons themselves. Now, I don't mean you need to describe your deepest, darkest, you know, worries and, and anxieties to a, a nine year old that's sitting there in your office with you. But I think that the more that you can. Um, you know, make them realize that, hey, it's not because you got, you know, a disability that makes you think these ways and worry about, about these things in life. It's, it's being human that makes you do this. 
And uh, we all kind of have to work our way through this. And whether it's, you know, being scared of fire drills or being scared of, you know, final exams or being scared of, um, you know, uh, what the doctor might tell you the next time you go on for a checkup. I think we all struggle with that stuff. Okay. Um, and uh, disclosing a little bit of, of yourself, um, I think, is, is a meaningful um, thing to do for all these right. kids. So kind of be an active participant and uh, along with the along with the the students, right? Yeah, very good, very and good. Last, last comment I'll make is that you know I think that um, one of the things that the one of the biggest questions I get with that book or or with ACT in general is you know is this within the scope of the practice of a behavior analyst to do? And, um, you know, states define what that practice is, and each state defines kind of the scope of, of practice, um, you know, in their, in their licensing codes. And the BACB um, defines kind of our scope of practice um, as certified individuals. And then there t- needs to be some self-responsibility um, by, on the part of the implementer in terms of, um, you know, is this person, or, you know, have they been trained sufficiently to, to deliver this type of the kids and then also to realize that you know th- there's a difference between trying to teach self-management skills um, when you do do this curriculum and and kind of tolerance for delayed reinforcers and uh, you know stepping back um, from uh, your initial impulsive behavior of wanting to hit a peer you know I mean th- those all kind of fit within a behavioral framework to some degree in turn under the Umbrella of rule governed behavior, self generated rules, instruction following, delayed reinforcement, self control, and then trying to dig into deeper psychological trauma, which is is definitely beyond what our role is as a behavior analyst. Mm-hmm. And so, mentioned very briefly in the book, and, and you know, I'll, I'll mention it here too, is these kids kind of start stepping into areas that you're not you're not trained in, um, and, and that fall outside of our our scope. Um, you need to you need to refer them appro- and deal with them appropriately, and not try to wrangle this yourself. I see. Yeah, that's that's a good point, and I could see how if kids start opening up and things like that, that you might come across a situation or two, or possibly more, where you know they they wade into some territory that is certainly you know beyond your your scope of practice. Right. All right. Cool. Right. Cool. Well, like I said, it's been one of the more popular sessions of the whole podcast series. And, uh, and so, um, I appreciate you spending a little bit more time following no some of those questions. And I look forward to, you know, hearing how these various research strands you've got going on, uh, come out. So we'll be, uh, keeping an eye. Are there any particular outlets that we should be uh, looking towards in terms of where these things are going to be published? Or is it too soon to speak? I don't want to, I don't want to get you in trouble here or, or, or anything yeah, like that. Like- probably too soon to speak about it i just need to stop sleeping and so i can write more papers and then things will get out quicker that sounds like a good plan (laughs) yeah all right um all right so let's uh let's change gears here let's talk about the uh the the peak relational training system um so this is another uh you know kind of uh highly anticipated uh, uh curriculum certainly um i have uh, I have the uh, uh, the direct training manual here on my desk. I'm looking at it right now, and I've uh, uh, shared it with some folks that have uh, traditionally been using the VB Map and other sorts of curricula. 
uh, and I've gotten some positive responses with regard to the peak system. But I want to kind of step back a little bit and ask you this. What made you decide to write the peak, uh, the peak curriculum? Was was there a specific case or set of cases or were there, was there you know, some situation that you, you know, where the light went off and said, ah, I got to do this. You know, can you, can you tell us a little bit how, what was the inspiration behind it? Yeah, there were two, two, um, discrete events that kind of brought it from, um, just kind of a vague idea to, to an actual curriculum. The first was that, uh, here at SIU, we had a faculty member who had just secured a grant to deliver and infuse ABA practices at a facility for children with autism that had really not been using behavioral analytic practices um, to date. And that was back like maybe about 2005 or so. Okay. And um, she decided to take another position and was going to leave the university right when this grant was starting. And I, as the, the head of the program, didn't want to lose this grant but couldn't convince any of the other faculty here to to pick it up. Everybody seemed to be doing their own thing and and didn't really want to, you know, take on a new initiative, especially one that they had not secured themselves. And so I thought, oh, what the hell, I'll just, you know, do this in addition to everything else. And and so I picked that, that project up without really much, you know, hands-on experience of working with these kids. Now, you know, I've been a professor for – for some time at this point and, and you know know the game of how behavior analysis works in those settings but um, and it really never spent my time in the trenches working with that population and and at the same time what happened was that there was a um, uh, a family not affiliated with that school but a family in southern Illinois here who um, had a child with autism that was getting some ABA services and that person moved out of town, and um, she, the mom, wanted those services to continue. And they heard about me, um, you know, as as the guy in charge of the program here, and thought that maybe I could um, be either the person to connect them with a new therapist, or possibly be that therapist myself. And so again, we this kind of came at a point where all of our students had placements already, and. Um, it was the beginning of the semester, and so I thought, oh, what the heck, I'll, this might be an interesting combination of circumstances where I could work one-on-one with this individual child and at the same time, you know, do some some kind of institutional education of um, this other facility and show them, you know, how do we do ABA with these kids. So, you know, I did what everybody else did at the time, and I asked uh, – you know, one of my colleagues, uh, well, how do you decide what uh, programs to work with these children on? And the response was, well, you just, you know, pick things that they can't do that somebody about their age might be able to do and just write a, you know, task analysis for doing it. And I thought, no, it's got to be harder than that. There's got to be some kind of instructional design to all these things. And, you know, the response was, well, you know, you can grab the ABLES. The VB map wasn't out at that time. You can grab the ABLES or the, the Gina Green book and, um, you know, just figure out where the kid's at and, and just start teaching some of those skills. And to me, honestly, at that point, you know, I, I was somewhat baffled by that, um, that level of specificity that was, was being run or at least being, you know, okay to run um, with these kids. And, uh, you know, but went in naively and, and did it and it worked so it was great 
Um, but, you know, as I was doing these things, I also became somewhat uh, perplexed at the redundancy of some of these tasks and the um, the lack of utilization of some of the scientific advancements that our field has known about for decades in, in specific uh, stimulus equivalents. And why weren't we teaching the derivations of skills rather than just the direct reinforcement um, of every single, you know, target stimulus. And so, you know, as I had time on my hands to kind of tinker around with things a little bit, I started to realize that um, I could play with these stimulus equivalence relationships and still teach tax and mans and interverbals and some of the basic stuff that everybody had been doing, but arrange the, the training procedures such that um, I would only train a fraction of those those um, responses and then get the derivations of others. So I saw this start happening in, in some pretty young kids. And uh, it, it shouldn't have been surprising. I mean, it had been happening in the journals for the last 40 years. But it just became increasingly, you know, kind of disappointed that we didn't have, um, or the clinicians out there, those frontline clinicians, didn't have these tools at their disposal in a way that made sense. Um, you know, I mean, all of my this is back in 05, 06, you know, I had probably eight years of graduate students under my belt by then that had been going out into this field of, of autism, that had studied RFT with me, that had studied stimulus equivalents. They weren't building their own programs this way. And the reason why is that they were, it was too hard. It's, too, you know, you read those JAB studies and, you know, your brain starts to hurt. Um, oh, yeah. I so can identify with that. Yeah. You know, so it seemed like, and we have this really cool stuff out there that we've been, you know, as, as a discipline have been, you know, diving into for, for decades that had not made it to the front line to benefit probably the population that needed that stuff the most. And so, so you know, when, you, when I look back on kind of what happened was that over the next couple of years, I became um, increasingly frustrated that that technology had not been put into place as well as that I got somewhat um, kind of bored with the fact that I was constantly, you know, like I have uh, the frontline implementers say to me, well, what should we run next? What should we run next? And I was just grabbing random things and saying, oh, why don't you try this? Or let's do some letters. And here's here's a script on how to teach letters. And uh, okay, you want personal information? Here's a script on how to do that. And I felt that with my time, and which I, I believe was a, um, just a model of what most behavior analysts out there feel is their time is that there's there's not enough of their time to, to manage these cases at the micro level of these clinical decision makings regarding curricular um, designs that it seemed that if I could put together a, a logical easy to implement uh, sequence of curricular tar you know tasks to do that they wouldn't need to wait for me to show back up again um, to guide them to the next program that these kids should run and and to do it in a way that was um, you know devoid of most of our technical vocabulary so they could read these things as frontline high school educated folks and uh, and get out there and, and start making some change with the kids and my role as a behavior analyst could be one more of one of troubleshooting when tar when things weren't moving forward that I could be coaching them on technique and uh, and not necessarily have to um, sit there or have them sit there and wait to for me to give them the all-knowing um, 
decision of what program should run next. And, uh, you know, I mean, in our training programs, we're not teaching our staff or our students instruction design. We're not teaching them, you know, those types of kind of educational procedures. And so it seemed like maybe there would be some value to a standardized curriculum and a standardized curriculum that would utilize um, all of behavior analysis, um, including stimulus equivalence and relational frame theory. So those that, those would be the differentiators between PEAK and, say, the VBMAP would be that, it, that the, the, the programs or lessons are already prepackaged and it, well, it also leverages the instructional power of RFT. Well, I think that, you know, th- there's a lot of similarities with um, the early stuff in PEAK and the VBMAP. And we've published um, a study on that showing that there's, you know, a lot of the same content of the curriculum is is found in both of those, um, those instruments. And then uh, with the, you know, with the PEAK curriculum, it, it goes beyond, um, you know, the higher levels of the, of the VBMAP. So I, I think that, I think that there is some, you know, some similarities between the systems, um, with the differences being made, probably um, best described as peak goes um, further, and that it maybe offers um, a non-technically trained implementer an easier way to um, to implement those programs. I see. So when you say go further, it kind of leads me to one of the questions I want to ask you: is you know, who who would you say the peak is is suited for if there's a if, there, if there's a range of of, of learners or uh, what have you we have um, kids as early as two years old come into our clinic and we run um, peak on them and we have uh, individuals that are 16 years old that we continue to still run peak on um, I think the the best um, metric of who it's useful for are, um, can be described in normative data um, which we've been um, cap, you know, trying to capture um, through this the last few years with with the system. Um, where right now we have a couple normative studies that have shown come up and have been published. the The first one on that direct training module or the beginnings of Peak uh, shows that neurotypical age kids will max out of that curriculum in that book by age eight. Um, and then in the second module of PEAK, the, uh, the generalization module, we see kids maxing out of that curriculum by about age 11 or so. I see. So, and those, and those are with neurotypical, you know, um, comparison peers to kids with autism. Now, again, these are small ends to, you know, I mean, relatively small end, it's like 200 kids. Um, but 200 is a lot more than what we, we typically utilize in behavior analysis research, but, you know, they're the beginning of the conversation. And um, so, so who do we, you know, what, what is the age range? Honestly, um, we use it for all ages um, of kids from the early learners all the way up to the uh, more advanced that are just struggling socially, emotionally. I see. So we've mentioned the term modules a couple of times. I don't know if we, can you go ahead and describe the, because there are, you know, what, what there's, four components to it, right? Yeah, yeah sure. Can you kind of walk yeah. us through each one and tell us what, what the uses are and, and so forth? Sure. There's there's four modules um, to the curriculum, the first being direct training. And that um, module 
as I said, uh, Max is out around age eight neurotypical. In that in that book, you will uh, have 184 skills uh, to teach the kids, or first to assess whether they're present or absent within the repertoire, and then if they're absent, um, the task analyses of how to teach these things. Um, and it, it really is a hundred percent, you know, Skinner's verbal behavior. There's nothing. There's not a single dry relational response in there. There's not anything that has to do with stimulus equivalence. It's really building the foundational skill set of these kids to uh, do the types of things that we find in um, Skinner's verbal behavior, from tax and mans to interverbals to echoics and, and so on. And the way that this book, I think, differs in, um, from some of the other materials that are out there is that we really spend a lot of time, especially in the second half of this book, digging into the more complex forms of Skinner's verbal operants. And so, you know, we might have them trying to tack the private events of others based on collateral publicly observable features to a private event. Um, you know, again, these are important skills for individuals to acquire, but that level of sophistication has really not been um, given to the marketplace in a way that could be implemented um, by frontline clinicians. Um, whether it be, you know, pri discriminating private events or whether it be, um, you know, utilizing autoclitics um, to the depth that we dig into or um, creative uh, combinations of words and, and meanings or describing things that they've observed. Um, there's just a lot more depth to the topographical complexity of Skinner's verbal behavior in that first module than anywhere else, which is why I think it, you know, we're normalizing at age eight as opposed to age, you know, four or five. Mm -hmm. Then the this book is the generalization uh, module, and in that book, what we what I've done is to try to um, really closely examine the Common Core standards that are in place in many states in America uh, for now, I guess, and and to try to um, make sure that we targeted things that were not just, you know, very discrete trial-based tabletop procedures, but more kind of experiential learning and, and um, uh, with, with the hopes of, you know, allowing these things to generalize across, you know, people, place, and stimuli. So, for example, in that book, um, there's things like, you know, measuring distances between two places on a map and and uh, utilizing uh, um, technology to communicate and and uh, you know dancing to various te um, tempos of music in a way that's socially appropriate. So it, and, and doing charades. So so there are these these somewhat you know odd tasks that that you wouldn't typically find in a behavior analytic um, curriculum, but they're done in a uh, in a very organized, meaningful way that um, just, you know, directly teaches these things, but then also is, is concurrently trying to evaluate the generalization or the lack thereof um, of these skills across different uh, target stimuli or environments. And so rather than train and hope to God that we get generalization, this is a book that, that um, spells out the specific procedures to get it, and when you don't, um, how do you become more in tune with the generalization gradient and, you know, how do we modify those stimuli targets 
along the gra the continuum of the gradient in order to ensure generalization occurs in the in the future. So that's that's the second book. Mm -hmm. The third book um, is uh, is exclusively stimulus equivalence, and that book. Uh, you know, I, I felt, or that topic and that that technology de, uh, needed necessitated a, its own module because there's so much um, that that technique can do for expanding the the verbal repertoire of an individual. Um, there again, 184 skills in that in that book to assess and then um, teach if they're absent within the repertoire. Um, and in this, in the book, it is really it, it's broken down into, um, you know, the sub skills that are necessary in order to eventually show stimulus equivalence. So we have reflexivity, symmetry, transitivity, and then eventually equivalence. And so you assess where the child is at, what their relational repertoire is, and then you teach multiple exemplars of those relational abilities. Uh, with the uh, the hopes of allowing those to emerge into more complex relational abilities in the future. So you're getting more bang for your instructional buck. Well, yeah, big time. I mean, some of the things that that um, you know we're teaching these kids, it's just phenomenal. I mean, it's just quick acquisition and and some really neat results. You know, with with the hopes that we what we are getting here is a repertoire of learning how to learn, not memorizing what to learn. And, you know, if there's one, you know, pitfall that, that we see over and over again with these kids and, and what we hear from our critics is that um, they're memorized rote responders that lack the flexibility of adapting these things to new and novel situations. And so as we start, you know, stripping away the, the direct reinforcement contingencies here and resulting in the necessity for these kids to make derivations based on a prior combination of stimuli, and that reinforcement history, we're teaching these kids to think differently. And that's a really exciting thing to see happen. So um, I know we're on module three, but <laughs> what? Uh, how do these interact with one another? I mean, I, I certainly want to hear about the fourth one, but um, before we go further, um, do, do you... You know, is the idea that you complete the direct training module prior to the generalization one, and then the generalization one prior to the equivalence one, or or or, or are they? Do you work on them simultaneously? I'm just trying to put myself in the position of, uh, say, a special ed teacher, you know, who's got a you know kiddos with autism on her caseload, and uh, is wondering what what to make of of all this, having you know perhaps had most of the experience based in the VB map or the Ables or you know whatever else is out there. Right. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I could give you a, a grandiose theoretical answer as the author, but uh, I kind of like letting the data speak to when to introduce these and what we know in terms of data that have been gathered and published is that um, you want to have about a score of a 30 on the direct module, meaning that you have to have about 30 skills in place before you introduce the generalization module in order to get any any really meaningful progress, it looks like. And then the equivalence module, honestly, you know, some of the basic skills in there are identity matching, um, both, uh, you know, visual-visual or auditory-visual, um, as well as moving across other types of um, sensory modalities. So can you match by smell? Can you match by taste? Can you match by touch? Um, so 
what I, you know, I mean, what, what we do know empirically right now is that you need about a score of 30 on the direct module before introducing the generalization module. And I don't have data yet to say when is the optimal time to introduce the equivalence module. But what I would suggest is that you have to have uh, basic matching abilities and understanding the concepts of same mm-hmm. and, and not same before you uh, start the equivalence module. So we started at about neurotypical 18 months to two years of age. So it's not something you start late at all. If you got kids matching pictures and doing puzzles and, and knowing what same is, they're ready to get started on this stuff. I see. With regard to uh, a communication modality, are, are you using this with kids who communicate through a, a variety of, of mechanisms? Yes. Yeah, we have... Um, a variety of, of kids that are on, uh, you know, just spoken vocal spoken language, but then also ones that are using Proloquo and these other augmentative devices. Uh, we have a paper under review right now of a, of a group of kids using um, PEX um, to, in some of these programs. So it's it's really uh, adaptable for whatever language modality that people are working in. Cool, cool. So let's talk about the uh, the final module. Uh, the final book, the one that that everybody's waiting for and nobody's waiting for as much as me to get done. Um, that book is uh, uh, exclusively RFT. It's uh, um, building upon the equivalence module to introduce uh, six fra- six uh, families of relational frames and how to use them in teaching. Um, this, uh, a variety of abstract and uh, inferential skills to kids. It uh, starts very early on with non-arbitrary types of relations among stimuli, from things like you know rolling a ball fast and then asking them to do the same, or rolling a ball fast and asking them to do the opposite, um, to things like nesting. Um, you know, cups inside of each other to build the foundational skills necessary for eventually teaching hierarchical uh, relational frames. Um, so there's some very basic things in that curriculum. Um, you know, I, I lay out three uh, black objects and a white one and then give them a black object and say, ask them to match to different or match to same um, so, so the book starts very early on, but then it, it goes into, um, you know, to the ne- uh, next level of, of complexity, which is rooted in some of the cultural conventions of our, of our verbal community. For example, you know, the, the text cat, C-A-T, and the, and the picture cat are only the same because our culture has made them so. Um, and, and, what is the level to which these kids have those uh, abilities to uh, come under the control of these culturally relevant uh, stimuli arrangements, and then moving beyond that to attaching additional functions to these things, um, whether they be, um, you know, feature function class type of of, um, targets or whether they be even more abstract targets, such as, um, you know, if I say that a... uh, a cug is the same as meow, 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 um, and I then show you a picture of a cat and ask you, what does a cat say? Um, can you not only say meow, meow, but if I say, what else does he say, would you say cug? Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So teaching some of that new inferential abilities and then moving beyond that into, uh, you know, higher order abstract uh, inductive and deductive logic um, with real world uh, stimuli and, you know, variety of interverbals or action based performances to things that are are purely arbitrary, um, which oftentimes seem to be foundational prerequisites for doing well on intelligence tests. I see. Uh, not to put you on the spot here, but do you have a time frame in which this one will be out? Yeah, it will be out before the end of this year. Um, we're hoping to get it out by Black Friday. <laughs> so you can you can line up. Uh, you can go to Carbondale and line up on 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 uh, Thursday night. And, uh... Yeah, I got a couple of freaky people outside my house waiting for it right that's now. Right, that's right, <laughs> intense. Yeah, uh, uh, but it. Honestly, I mean, like I'm sitting on, you know, we're, it, it, we're, I see it, you know, I mean, it's here, it just isn't released yet. So it's, it's pretty exciting. I've been leaking uh, little tiny bits of it on fa- on the peak Facebook page. Um, so it's, it's been pretty, you know, I'm just excited for it to get done. I think a lot of people are waiting on it. Oh, hey, um, um, but what real quick though. Um, so that is that like facebook.com forward slash peak? Peak ABA. Peak ABA. Uh, right. Yeah, I think. All right, I'll, I'll get it. I'll get the actual thing and make sure that gets put out in the uh, the uh, introductory part of this uh, conversation as well. So I'll put it on the my webpage too. So just want to make sure I got that right. Yep. Well, that's really exciting. What um, you 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 referenced some studies uh, earlier on, um, but I kind of want to circle back to that. What 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 is uh. What is the state of the research on Peak? I know you're you're doing a, quite a bit of work on it, and and again, I, I with all these different things you got going on, it's it's amazing that uh, uh, I, I don't understand how you get it all done. But um, anyway, well, let, let me tell you how I get it all done. Get it. Sure, I mean the way I get it done is that I have I have such a uh, rich group of graduate students that um, are are just fantastic. I mean it's it's they, you know their names are on all these publications. They are. Um, a critical um, part of, of the way the reason why this thing has the data behind it that it does. Um, I guess you know what I've been able to do, and I think they've been able to sustain is a culture of of trying to push this thing forward into the community with um, the empirical um, depth to it, so that it's not easily brushed off as as the latest greatest fad without any any real reason to justify taking a second look at it. So what stuff do we have going on? I think we've got 18 peer-reviewed papers that have been published or in press in the last two years, and there's probably 16 more that are under review right now and probably another 15 or so that need to be written up. Holy Um, cow. So it's been a, a wild, fun ride um, trying to get as much data as we can on on some of this stuff, um, whether it be single subject designs demonstrating that these programs in the curriculum actually work, um, to looking at psychometrics, um, you know, the reliability and validity of the assessments and uh, normalization data and so on, factor analyses data. Now, again, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't feel that. What we've done is is sufficient. I don't feel that what we've done justifies 
peak being the greatest thing since sliced bread. I think what we've done is, is start an empirical um, base for these package curriculum that have not really hasn't been out in our published literature to date. Um, but I, you know, I'll be the first one to say that there's limitations to any and all of these things, including what I've done. And um, my goal isn't to publish these things to say, look, I did everything right. But rather, my goal is to say, well, here's some here's some ideas, here's some data that supports this. So uh, hopefully, it plants the seeds for other people to go out there and evaluate our work, criticize our work, you know, replicate it would be nice. Um, but but I'm far from being so vain to think that uh, this thing is is flawless. Sure, sure. But you know, just the sheer numbers of of, of studies that you've either done or have going on is is is, is nonetheless, you know, kind of uh, mind blowing. So um, you know, hats off to you guys for for doing the the hard science and um, and that, that that is difficult work. So uh, well, you. This this program really does challenge the status quo. It challenges the notion that Skinner's verbal behavior is sufficient to teach these kids with autism. And I, I think there, it does have utility, but I think in isolation, um, it's not sufficient. And it's it's oftentimes uh, you know laborious, and uh, it only takes us to a certain level of sophistication. So in order to push back against what, you know, as you mentioned, an entire generation of behavior analysts are using um, and say, hey, guess what? There's this new thing out here that you might not have learned about in school called RFT. And there's this there's some possibilities that this thing might actually um, lead to greater gains for these kids. Maybe, um, you know, to get people to, to stop what they're doing and change is a is a major hurdle to get over. And so, you know, it, it, people may change from from the gossip that surrounds Peak of it being kind of fun and cool and new stuff. But I think that in order for that to be sustained over time, is there better be some data to support it? Mm-hmm. And so, again, I'm not I'm not saying our data are sufficient, but we're just going to keep putting out papers until people realize that um, it wasn't just a one hit wonder. I see. Like, uh. All right, cool. Um, I know you got to go here in a few minutes. I'd like to close out the conversation. You know, we've mentioned RFT a couple times. We've had whole episodes on ACT, and, you know, um, but haven't really delved into RFT. Certainly don't have enough time to do it right now. Um, but as you mentioned, it's not something that gets typically uh, reviewed by, by many BCBAs, and they kind of learn about it, you know, possibly at certain times by, you know, maybe attending a talk or something like that or what have you. And I, um, can you talk a little bit about where RFT kind of fits in? Uh, I, I'm sure you have strong opinions on it, certainly. Um, I guess my question would be, you know, to, to make it more precise is, you know, how, how if, if, if uh, RFT passed you by <laughs> uh, at a certain point in your training, you know, what are some good resources to, to, uh, to, to look into if you were to kind of, um, and how do you guys go about it as as a as an institution as as a, as a department? Uh, where in the curriculum does RFT uh, uh, show up uh, in your training of behavior analysts? I mean, I could talk about it for like an hour on each of those questions. You just gave me. <laughs> Maybe just tee up uh, tee up Mark, Mark Dixon episode three. So <laughs> yeah, it'd be like a mini series with Dixon and his ramblings. But, um, 
let, let me kind of give sum up RFT, I guess, in, in maybe two minutes or less, and then talk about where I think it fits in and, and why didn't it get put into everybody's curriculum. All right. Um, I think that, that RFT, um, what, what, it, what it's suggesting is that there are these formless operants of relating that um, are stimulus boundless. Now, that sounds pretty magical. Um, and and as a result, often spooks people. But it really is nothing different than general, you know, the notion of generalized imitation. And uh, you know, that's a boundless operant that has you know an endless amount of topographies uh, that are only limited by the structural abilities of the the organism. Um, RFT is going to suggest that not only is you know generalized imitation a formless operant, but also these things. Uh, you know, the way that we relate stimuli together could be a formless as well, yeah, to, you know, topographically boundless. And and I think that if if people just understand RFT as that, is that if I can relate things that are opposite, you know, together. So, uh, you know, you show me this is the opposite of this, and I understand the concept of the opposite, I could pretty much go out into the world and navigate any type of oppositional task that you ask me to do. Um, same thing if, you know, if I understand greater than or less than, it doesn't matter what the stuff is that's presenting to me, but as long as I know that generalized operant of relating, I can pretty much solve all those puzzles that, that come to me out there in the world. Without RFT having is, being directly trained on each and every exemplar. Exactly. Same way we don't have to train every single exemplar of, of generalized imitation. So... Honestly, I and that you know that's the only thing that RFT is really going to you know threaten behavior analysis with is this notion of a formless operant, which is honestly something that's been there for decades already that we've somehow been okay with. Where I think RFT has struggled has been with that T and that in in, in RFT, which is a theory, which is a very conceptually heavy. Um, philosophical stance on on language and on uh, you know and, and cognitive abilities that I think just wasn't something that a, a master's level person wants to dig into at any great depth as well as that it, it does push quite considerably hard against the notions that we've been comfortable with in our field for some time and so what I think, you know, has happened and what and the way that I try to go about altering this is that I don't go in pushing the theory on people. And, you know, some people don't care about theory and, and others who do have their theories are usually not easily swayed. Um, what my role, I think, has been most successful with has, has, is, is showing how these types of relations can develop and how they're really easy to train. And as a result, maybe they're worth incorporating into the things that you do with the kids you work with. That's, that's a big difference than saying, let me teach you this 400-page theoretical conceptualization of language and then hope to God you, you buy it enough to go out there and change practice. Um, so how we blend it into the curriculum is, is in a very similar vein where I want to show utility first, and then maybe out of, uh, you know, 100 people, I'll hook a couple or, you know, four or five into caring about the theory behind it. But, you know, whether it be a good thing or a bad thing, the professionalization of our discipline 
has resulted in um, people wanting results and people want, wanting procedures um, and not necessarily another class on uh, theoretical conceptualizations of, of behavior analysis. Mm-hmm. Wow. That, well, that was, that was a, a pretty tall order, and uh, I think you, you I think, uh, <laughs> did quite nicely with the limited time we, we have. So um, I know you got to go teach class here in just a minute. So, uh, Mark, thanks so much for joining us, and uh, uh, I think people would want to tune in for uh, the, the third installment of a miniseries. So if we can get you back sometime, uh, you know, to talk, to expound more on RFT or anything else. <laughs> Sure, uh, I could that, do a, you, that would be I awesome. Could do a short one. I could do a short one on my uh, hobbies outside of behavior analysis. It would be, <laughs> be, yeah. be a pamphlet. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, I guess let me leave, um, you know, close with the, the notion of, um, you know, what, what I think uh, this P curriculum does that, that I'm most proud of is that it really, you know, takes – our entire discipline and and the contemporary findings that we found we have as scientists and and takes them down to a level that people can implement with with fidelity and uh, and gain some positive outcomes in um, the kids that they work with and you know over the last year or so that I've been doing workshops and trainings on this stuff I've met countless numbers of people that have been looking for something more that I've been looking not that anything out there is is insufficient or poor I mean I think that all those other curriculum have done fantastic meaningful things for for countless numbers of kids but it seemed like that we we stopped a little too soon like we we just didn't have the the technical sophistication to get these kids to the next level of language and understanding what they were you know talking about and and comprehending what other people were saying to them um, to the degree that that we did as um, as you know grown up adults and and what I hoped and I, and I think we're getting with peak is is this next level of complexity to language that can have meaningful and sustainable effects on on kids that need it the most and so if, if that's all that happens then I think we've done the right thing cool all right well Thanks again, Mark. I know uh, uh, you kind of squeeze, squeezed uh, squeezed in this interview amongst a, a whole host of other things that you're uh, responsible for. So, um, yeah, thanks for coming on talking about uh, Peak and certainly those follow-up questions on your other curriculum. So, yeah, no problem. All right, I'll talk to you later. All right, take care. All right, bye. Well, there you have it, folks. You've just listened to Session 23 of the Behavioral Observations Podcast. Again, lots of really good information. And it's, uh, you know, Mark's one of those kind of guests we could probably have on a couple of times a month and still learn new things. And uh, we still haven't gotten to a lot of his areas of interest, including gambling and other sorts of things that he's had a lot of uh, uh, good research in. So uh, we'll have to have him back at some point. But in the meantime, we're going to call it a day with this episode with... Uh, all of our episodes, you can uh, check out the show notes at behavioralobservations.com. And uh, I think that's pretty much it. So uh, we will see you in episode 24. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Behavioral Observations Podcast with Matt Sicoria. You can find Matt's notes on this episode at www.behavioralobservations.com. 
We also invite you to stay connected with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash behavioral observations and on Twitter at Behavior Podcast.